and welcome to the second episode of Digest Cast, a podcast dedicated to the belief that big things come in small packages. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly, and we are proud members of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. How you doing, bud? Let's get small, Shag. <laughs> I love that Steve Martin bit. That's awesome. Well, folks, as we said, it's the second episode where we're celebrating these pocket-sized treasures from that those bygone halcyon years of the 70s, 80s, back when Rob had hair. Um, I like the way I look. At least someone does. And uh, it seemed like the first episode went over really well. I mean, people I, – I mean, I don't think it's us. I mean, people love the format – and they love that JSA uh, digest. It's not so much us, but they're glad people are talking about it. We got a ton of feedback, and we're going to cover that when we get on the other side. However, as it tends to be, when we do a show about something, <laughs> news breaks immediately after we record it. Rob, why don't you tell the folks what we've done for them? We are making it rain. Yes, right after <laughs> the uh, first episode of Digest Cast hit. News came out that Marvel is getting into the Digest Comics game again. It's so exciting. Yeah, on February 16th, they sent out a press release. They are teaming up with Archie, of all people, to release a series of Digest format comics that will feature their most popular characters. And they have some shots here of the first couple issues. The first one has Spider-Man on it, and the second one is the Avengers. And it will feature characters like Iron Man, X-Men, Black Widow, Wolverine, Thor, Hulk. And, you know, that's already exciting by itself that Marvel's doing digests because Marvel never really did digests outside of Spider-Man, G.I. Joe, and, and those boxes that hit each other. So, I mean, this <laughs> is kind of such a big thing. I think that's, gr- that's great. But secondly, by teaming up with Archie, they are ensuring that their digest will be sold uh, at, quote, newsstands, right. box stores. Uh, what's the other? There was a th- grocery stores. Uh, grocery stores, like they amazing. Will, they will be sold where Archie Digest gets sold. So basically, Marvel is going to be putting them together creatively, and then Archie will be packaging them and distributing them. Oh and gosh. That, I mean, it's like literally everything you would want in, oh. in this in this thing. If you wanted, you know, if you were a Digest fan, which we are, this is everything you would want because it's like part of the problem that uh, these other publishers have had when they've tried to do something for kids is that they generally only sell them in comic stores and then they don't, they don't succeed sales wise because little kids don't go to comic stores. But you know, so you're like, well, okay, you're making these products, but you're putting them where no kid is going to see them. And then you're like mad that no kids buy them. Well, you got to put them where the kids are. Marvel is doing that. And the reason, uh, uh, the reason that this is so necessary is because Archie has owned that real estate, for 30 years and they're not giving it up, which is of course, you know, the prime, uh, you know, grocery store thing, you know, when you're in the supermarket line, oh, and yeah. red, oh, red, yeah. there, there are the Archie digest and you see them in newsstands and whatever and stuff like that. So Marvel is basically horning in on Archie's action with Archie's help. Uh, I don't know what the deal is there. I kind of amazed that Archie would go along with it, but they are. So anyway, starting in June, which is perfect summertime, there's going to be Marvel Comics Digest, and it's going to feature all their great characters. I, I Look, there is no proof that this show did not cause this to happen. <laughs> so until someone from Marvel comes on the show to tell us we're wrong, I think we should take credit. Absolutely. Well, I mean, for years we've been talking about Marvel and DC should get into the di- either Digest or Supermarket distribution action like Archie and we always said well only Archie can do it well Marvel did the smart thing and teamed up with Archie now if these digests are successful I wouldn't be surprised in a couple of years if we don't see Disney buy Archie jeez yeah you're right Disney could own everything yeah I mean why not 
Why not? That'd I mean, cool. they bought Marvel Studios because they liked the way they made their movies. They, you know, just there's a whole lot of gobbling up of different things because they like the way people distribute and sell their stuff. And Archie's got this formula, right? So why not? I have so, three, yeah. I have three words that I think they should consider. Okay. Star Wars Digest. Oh, oh. I'm bracing myself against the counter. I need a minute. <laughs> Whew, man. Okay. On that note, uh, whew, I'm all verklempt. All right, why don't we take a take a second to catch yeah, our breath? We're going to take a moment. Yeah, we're going to just take a knee Whew. for a second. Think right. So this well, is just so exciting. This is in a Raiders of Lost Ark digest could be right behind that. I mean, oh, come there on. Oh, perfect. It was, this is like this. This was quite literally everything I would have wanted. Outside of it not being DC, DC would be my my number one choice. But outside of that, this is literally they're doing it exactly the way every kind of old school nerd fan would hope they would do it. And, well, yeah, you know. So this is so exciting, and I'm assuming it's all reprinted material. Who cares? I mean, all these characters are movie stars. They have such yep. name recognition. Every little kid is going to be like, I know who all these characters are. They're in they're movie and TV stars. So, you know, they didn't list the price point, but if they stick to the Archie thing, that's probably like 5.95 for like 100 yeah. pages. That's a deal. It's a good deal. What's well, sitting right next to Us magazine and People magazine right, and parents right. don't care. They're like, "Okay, Johnny, shut up. Here, take this. Fine." <laughs> you know, it's it, it's a great deal. And um yeah, they, they, what they could do, honestly, is take their Marvel Adventure line of Digest that they did a couple years back. Well, it's probably been 10 years back now, and just repurpose those. Even those yeah. would work just fine. They're just – they were designed. It's all ages. Perfect comics. All right. Well, as we revel on that – You're welcome, America. Exactly. <laughs> in the rain we have caused. Why don't we take a second to talk about some more Digest, at least mine is, in our in-stock trades picks. Folks, this episode of the Digest cast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, other collected editions, including Digests. All for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got? Oh, I have a Digest, too. Uh, I picked Sergeant Rock's Combat Tales, Volume nice. 1, which was uh, one of the more modern Digests DC put out. I think they put it out around 2005 or so, and it's a collection of, of course, Sergeant Rock stories from GI Combat and Our Army at War. It features 10 different stories featuring uh, Rock and the Easy Company. Normal price is $9.99. In-stock trades price is only $5.79. 128 pages featuring stories by Robert Kaniger, art by Joe Kubert, Jerry Grandinetti, Irv Novick, and Russ Heath. And a, a really great collection. This is the only one they ever did, which makes me so sad. Because if you look on the spine of the book, it says one on the oh. side. Which meant that you know they were hoping to do more, and I guess it didn't sell or whatever. So this is the only one they ever did. But uh, it's, it's a really nice little collection, so you can't beat it. And it's a, it's a digest for $5.79. That's awesome. And you said it was 128 pages? 128 pages. I mean, that's going to be tough to top. Uh, 128 pages. All right, you know what? I'm going to raise you. All right, I'm going to beat your 128 pages with a thousand pages. I'm not kidding. Archie 1000 page comic palooza trade paperback, which is digest size, by the way. Well, maybe not the depth, but the uh, length and width are digest size. I did check. Unbelievable. Archie, I guess just just on a lost it bet or something, and they published a 1,000-page edition. It features <laughs> over 100 full-color stories covering you know the whole gamut of their history with all kinds of Archie stories and things along those lines and uh, covering the whole 70 years of publications. Full-color, normally retails for $14.99. 
uh, in stock change price is 30% off, so you only pay $10.49. So, yeah, you can get that Sergeant Rock one for five bucks, get a whole 20, 128 pages, or get 10 times that many pages and only pay double the price. So, definitely check out both of these. Please visit instocktrades.com for all your trade paperback needs and digests. Well, moving on, because we got lots to talk about, and I do mean lots. Folks, last episode, Rob picked the digest we covered. We covered that JSA digest. It was glorious. I absolutely fell in love with that Golden Age story. It just it, – it, it is a nice reminder that Golden Age comics can be so captivating and still interesting all these years later. So Rob then said – Jack, you get to pick the next digest. So uh, after 15 rejections, I finally got one Rob could agree to. Um, <laughs> I picked one here. Let's start off here. Here you go, folks. Let me entice you. You ready? Tell me if these names mean anything to you. Walt Simonson, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Dan Spiegel, Ross Andrew, Kurt Swan, Dick Giordano, Joe Kubert, J.M.D. Mateus, Len Wein, Paul Levitz, Michael Flesher, and more. All of them have work featured in the digest we're going to cover today. And we, I wanted to, I had a hard time picking because I thought, you know, should we get something that we know, you know, people love JSA. They love that one. So what could I get that I know people love? Because I'm afraid I'm going to pick a digest that people are going to go, oh, it's not my favorite character. I'm not going to listen. So instead we picked one that has a smattering of all the different genres. This thing jumps from Superman to Gotham City hoodlums that doesn't even have Batman in it to the Legion of Superheroes to Sergeant Rock to the Joker to Jonah Hex to random sci-fi fantasy stories. It's a really, really interesting mix of genres from DC's publication. And um, we're now... It, what it is, I'll just tell you what it is, by the way. It's the best of DC, number 11, year's best comic stories of 1980. And let me tell you, the cover is by Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano, and it is just about one of the most boring covers I have ever seen. Um, it's actually why I picked up the digest when I was flipping through all of them. I'm like, this cover is so boring. And I'm like, let me just see what's inside and flip through it and decide if it's interesting at all. And that's when my mind just exploded the variety. Rob, what, what do you think of this cover? I actually kind of like it. It's not, it's nothing compared to the JSA one that we did. But I, as I mentioned, when we talked about that book, I'm a sucker for the heroes all getting together and like pounding around. Like I yeah. love those covers. And that's what this is. I love that Jonah Hex is helping Sergeant Rock. Yeah. Scale the t the one and the ten, and Superman <laughs> is lifting the ten, and uh, Saturn Girl looks quite fetching in her little thigh high boots and whatever. Dead Man is there. I don't know if anybody even knows that. So yeah, it's <laughs> you know it's not the greatest cover in the world, but I, I like all the heroes goofing around together. So I, I'm kind of more pro it than you are. So Rob, Rob sort of described it. Yes, it's it's an enormous number ten in, in three dimensions, and the heroes are goofing around on it, as he says. So it's it's just to me it's just boring as hell, and that's why I would think this is the kind of digest. If I tell people this is what we're covering, they're going to be like, really that one? But when you get to these stories, I think you'll get it. Now uh, let's see. Now Rob, by the way, why don't you tell the folks how they can follow along at home? Well, you can go to the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, and we have a, 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 a an adjoining gallery page, which to this to the to the post for this podcast, and then the gallery post will feature scans from this very comic. Awesome, uh, really easy for you to say too, clearly. So this sucker is cover dated. <laughs> you only do this like once a week, really. That was that hard for you to spit all that out. Uh, this is cover dated April 1981. It was on the shelves January 8th. 1981, and the cover, as we mentioned, Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano, page counts 128, well, it's, it's 128 pages, though the cover says 132 prize-winning pages. It's because they count the cover as a page, but whatever. Now, cover <laughs> price was 95 cents, less than a dollar. How awesome is that? 
and the editor was Julie Schwartz, and the consulting editor was uh, e. Nes- e. Nelson Bridwell, which is kind of important for later. Um, so, we've, again, we've got ten different stories, and I guess we'll just uh, go into and We'll tell you guys what they are as we go along. Rob, you want to take the first one? Yes, we're going to kind of zip through it because there are ten stories. We're going to kind of zip through these as, as fast as possible. Oh, yeah. Get, yeah, yeah. Get bogged down here. So, anyway, the first story is uh, from the Action Comics number 507, The Miraculous Return of Jonathan Kent. By Carrie Bates, Kurt Swan, Frank Chair, Ramonte, Milton Snappen, great name. And Gene, <laughs> love that guy's name. And Milton, uh, and, and, and the colorist is a Gene D'Angelo. Basically, the story starts that Lana Lang invites Clark Kent for dinner, and she brings along a special guest, Jonathan Kent. What? Yeah, I know. Superman, of course, in the form of Clark Kent, is convinced this man is a fake since his father died years ago. But his super senses tell him this is actually his father. How can this be? Meanwhile, a local metropolis hippie finds himself with superpowers, <laughs> able to get people to do his bidding just by saying, please, which he uses against the Man of Steel. The story ends with Superman accepting Jonathan Kent as his father after uh, basically subjecting him to several different tests, but it, the uh, erstwhile Jonathan Kent passes them all. And the hippie named Starshine tells everyone in Metropolis over 30 to get out and stay out. Please. <laughs> That's the story. <laughs> Well, uh, what did you think of it? It's very silly. Um, but Okay, this, this is a great hook for a story because you're like, wait, Jonathan Kent is dead. How is he alive? How is he still alive? Right. And it, it, it's undermined a little by I know what the, the reveal is in part two. Okay. And, and the part, it's so ridiculous that, uh, you know, I, I like the idea that um, there are still hippies in Metropolis in hey, 19... That's... In 1980, I think that's, that's one of my comments. Is 1980 1980 problem? <laughs> and the guy's name is Starshine, and like, I mean, this, this, like, I mean, this was written by Carrie Bates, who was a fairly young guy, but this this feels like it could have been written by you know Milt Weinzinger, Mort Weinzinger, you know, who's like an older guy, like damn hippies, you know, like that's really <laughs> funny. Um, it's it's really silly. It's really 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 silly. Uh, so I'm not sure. If this is maybe you know maybe the best way to start, uh, you know yeah. the 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 the, the, uh, the best collections. And this was this really the potentially best Superman story of the year? I don't know. I'm a little dubious of it that this is the way to start this collection. Well, you know, keep in mind a lot of the editors that were involved with the digest also worked on the Superman books, but yes. <laughs> it does feel very much like a Silver Age story. But once you get past the goofiness of it, uh, there is a sweet tale in here of of Clark being reunited with his foster father. You know, this man that he lost however many years before, actually having him and finally accepting that it's really his dad or step or you know, adopted father whatever and, and being, you know, reuniting and that, and there's a it's a very sweet sweet connection there. Um now going back to the funny side, I do like I sat here and sort of thought about it. again, the 1980s hippies, which is just weird, but also the fact that his power is every time he says please, things happen right. and it made me just Think maybe Carrie with Bates uh, was just fed up with his kids because, like, when they bother <laughs> you and they say, "But I said, please, can I please have ice cream?" You know, or something. I said, "Please makes everything okay." I don't know. And maybe that's just my own parent parental problems uh, transferring on top of the story. But I do love the part where he tells Superman to go take a slow boat to China. So Superman is forced to literally fly, <laughs> literally to, on a slow like boat an old, China. old yeah, to a, a Chinese junk, I guess is what you call those ships, and, and and took the slow boat to China, which was hysterical. So. And uh, you know what? Why don't we move on? Because we're going to talk about this, the other half of the story in the back end yeah. anyway. So yep, we yep, can yep, do yep. that. Yeah, we got part two coming. Yep. 
Yep, so we'll, we'll cover it then. Up next is a story uh, which technically doesn't have a name, but it was named for this digest. They call it Pinball, and it's uh, from the Tales of Gotham City. So this would have been, I guess, a backup story in Detective Comics number 494. It's only seven pages long, so it's short. It's written by Jack C. Harris, uh, editor on the first uh, creation of Firestorm, by the way. Uh, art by Dan Spiegel. Look at that. Letter John Costanza and colorist uh, Tatjana Wood. I guess that's how you say that. And uh, it's a brief tale of inner-city Gotham. There are no superheroes, no supervillains, or even paranormal powers of any kind. It's just a story about some kids getting caught up in organized crime. So here's how it goes. Flip is a 19-year-old pinball wizard. He's the king of the local arcade. He's arrogant, and he thrives on the attention of others. But on, uh, but on the side, he's a runner delivering illicit packages for the owner of the arcade to local mob groups. One of Flip's admirers in the pinball uh, arcade is this little kid named Juan. And it's just this adorable, young, wide-eyed kid who is probably only about nine years old. And in an effort to impress Flip, Juan, the little kid, offers to deliver the latest illicit package for Flip. So Flip happily agrees to let Juan deliver the package so he can keep playing pinball. Now, while the kid's en route, they get word that the mob, the mob has decided they don't want the package delivered. So Flip knows that Juan could be in danger, but he keeps playing pinball. The scene alternates then between the mob enforcers hunting down little Juan uh, and then Flip playing pinball. And the action in both scenes are sort of nicely thematically matched because uh, it gets more intense as you go along. Ultimately, Flip is overcome with guilt and takes to the street to protect Juan. And in the end, little Juan is saved by Flip. The two mob enforcers lie dead in the alley and Flip himself dies from a gunshot wound. He hands little Juan onto a pinball saying, this place won't give you any free games. Oof, man, I thought this story was really powerful. I really like Dan Spiegel's art. Again, it's only seven pages. My, my recap probably has more words than the whole comic. It was really, really well done. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And just to see the seedier side of Gotham without Batman there. Oh, what would you think of it? Yeah, I thought this was terrific. Uh, I really liked the Tales from the – I think Tales from the Gotham City as a concept was cool. I mean, you know, this is kind of a little bit of ahead of its time, really, to be doing these stories uh, – Batman stories without Batman. And uh, Dan Spiegel, the late Dan Spiegel, just, of course, passed away just like a month yep. or two ago. Perfect artist for this strip. And, like, gritty, humanistic style. So, and uh, it's a perfect choice. So, no, I really, I really like this. And I appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, this got picked to be in the best of. This probably wouldn't right. be something normally anybody would think to do. Yeah, well, I guess you know it's it was as you said it was sort of forward thinking. It's, at this time, these kind of darker tales were sort of relegated to the mystery books. You know, the, the tales of the unexpected. You'd see this kind of tale in it or something like that. But to find it in a Batman comic was probably pretty surprising. And I really do think Spiegel did a great job uh, of again. I mentioned it in the recap the, the thematic matching between the pinball game going on where he's starting to tilt, he's getting upset, he smashes the glass, you know, all matching the danger the little boy is in. It just builds and builds and builds. It's done really, really, really well. So I, I was really impressed. I didn't, I didn't expect much out of it. Now, one thing to mention in this too is, you know, Chris Franklin from our network recently said in an episode of Nightcast, he said that before year one, Gotham wasn't like the seediest city in the country. Now, they had some problems, corruption you mentioned, but for the most part, it was year one that established as just a totally gritty town. Well, here I think, you know, we got a few years before that shows that Gotham was a pretty dangerous place to be in. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, you know, back DC did that Gotham Central book eventually. Yeah. You know, and that was yep. like a big deal. And like, well, here's DC doing that same thing 20 years, you know, ahead of that. Yeah. And and last comment I have was, you know, the very end when Flip, he, I mean, is what I'm going to describe here, it wasn't graphic. You know, visually graphic, but what happens was really horrible. I mean, Flip comes up behind one of the hoods and stabs him in the back, kills him. Then he 
grabs the gun, struggles with it, and then the, the, the last goon and Flip shoot each other to death, basically. I mean, it's just, whoa, very intense without being graphic. And wow, took me back. Good stuff. All right. All right, well, we're going to stay in Gotham with the next story, which is Dreadful Birthday, Dear Joker. Of course, starring Batman from Batman number 321 by Lynn Ween, Walter Simonson, and Dick Giordano. That's a combo. Uh, Ben Oda and Adrian Roy. As a birthday gift to himself, the Joker kidnaps Commissioner Gordon, Robin, Alfred, and other Gotham citizens, strapping into a massive explosive birthday cake. (laughs) Running an an ad from the Harlequin Baking Company and offering free samples to the citizenry, he threatens to blow all of them up unless, of course, the Batman is willing to take the place of the hostages. It ends with the Dark Knight and the Joker battling atop the Crown Prince of Crime's getaway boat, which, of course, explodes. The Joker's body is nowhere to be found, and Batman knows exactly what that means. Uh, I love this story. I absolutely love the story. and my, the, the inclusion of it uh, leads me to one of the minor criticisms I have of this book, is that the cover is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Okay. Uh, it is an amazing cover, and the covers are not reprinted in this book. Ah, okay. Uh, you do see them on the back cover, done in uh, monochromatic, but it, that's not the same. I wish they had reprinted the covers. Now, I know why they didn't, because some of these are anthology stories, and they don't necessarily feature the you know the cover isn't relevant to the story reprinted. But I think right. like the the Batman cover for this comic by by Garcia Lopez is so good. That it needs to be included. And that's, that's the one minor criticism I have of this collection is that the covers are not included. That said, I love this. This I think this story is just so much fun. It's great. It, it's a lot of – it really is a lot of fun. It's it, it was surprisingly less Bronze Age-y than I expected. Like I'm not a huge fan of Bronze Age comics. I do struggle with them sometimes. Uh, like I, I just feel like it's lacking realism or something. But – this was this Batman seemed like a nice bridge between a lot of the the Silver Age, I mean the Bronze Age stuff I've read, and getting to the the stuff that they're covering in Nightwatch right now. So it's like or Nightcast, I'm sorry, but it, it, it kind of seems like a nice bridge to there. I uh, I got a few notes here. Like I, I love little things like <laughs> on the invitation that the Joker sends he, he to Commissioner Gordon, he actually writes BYOB. Yeah. Which I just thought was like ridiculously funny that <laughs> Commissioner's supposed to, to bring his own beer. Uh, Selena Kyle's in this thing as Bruce's girlfriend, mm-hmm. so that was during that era. I didn't realize that era lasted so long. I mean, that that clearly goes on for quite a while. And then, because I mean, she's girlfriend here in 1980, and they're still talking about it in Nightcast in 1985, right? Mm-hmm. Or 1986 or 87, I mean. So, 80, wow. actually, yeah, probably 87, I think. Was she really the girlfriend that long, or did she just drop in and out? I wonder. I think she dropped in and out because Nocturna okay. worked in there at one point. So I think oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm glad you mentioned her because Robin looks great in this. I mean, Simonson, it, we, a lot of people talk about how only Perez could make Robin look cool in that costume as a teenager. You know, he, he looks. Most people just drew him as like a little boy still. They didn't draw him looking like a teenager in that Robin costume to make it look cool. But Simonson pulls it off. Robin looks makes that costume work for him. And it looks very, very cool. And um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me with like the Joker. I could totally hear the Joker's voice from the cartoon in the 70s or I guess it's the 60s cartoon. Okay. They had a very, well, there the, were two. There was a 60s one and a 70s one. So it depends which one you're talking. I guess. It, which one? Which guy did they use that appeared in the Scooby-Doo one? Like there was the Scooby-Doo team up with... Joker and Penguin. Uh, that's I'm not is, sure. Is that the '60s voice? I'm Either way, sure. I 
I hear that voice in my head as I was reading this. I, I didn't expect to, but I, that voice totally rang through really clearly, which I don't usually hear voices when I read comics. I'm like, wow. Uh, I guess, I, well, I should be more specific. I don't hear those voices. But anyway, uh, I also like how there's a lot of Joker tropes in this thing. You've got Joker, you know, he's in drag at one point as a helpless woman on the side of the road. He kills one of his own goons. He gets blown up. I mean, there's just a lot of really great Joker uh, tropes. And one thing I did notice is at one point he is floating away in a balloon. And I just saw for the first time the other day, George Perez did an amazing drawing of the Joker in a Joker balloon floating away with Batman and Robin trying to stop him. And apparently, as near as I can tell, it only appeared in a portfolio edition. Have you ever seen this thing? I don't think so. And I can't – I mean I doubt this little panel you know, on page seven of this comic inspired it, but – the the idea of Joker floating away in a Joker balloon is just really cool, and this Perez drawing would blow you away. But either way, um, I really enjoyed the story. And I yeah, I, I well, I think one of the things I like about it is it is feature. It, to me, it's like if you were trying to teach someone about Batman, either as to like they were going to write the character, or you just had to introduce a kid. This is the comic book you would give them. It's a one. Mm. It's a one and done. It features, yeah. it features all of Batman's main supporting cast. It features his main villain doing something that is very typical of the Joker. Like it's a very typical Joker plot. It, it like it has a riddle. It has like to me this has every element of a Batman story. This would be the comic you would give to someone if you're like, hey, I've never read a Batman comic. What's a Batman comic? Here, read this. This okay. is it. This is exactly yeah. it. And I mean, like Walt Simonson drawing Batman. You didn't see that a lot. Like, I don't know why he did, did this one-off story, but there it is. So, I mean, to me, this is like a perfect little just one-off Batman story. And I can it's see great. why he would pick it. Now, Batman's a lot more talky than he, yes. like than I'm used to, but that's Bronze Age Batman for you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. Terrific. And he even has the Joker card, which I love. With the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love all of that. So, okay, the next story is Brief Encounter from Time Warp number 5, their anthology comic. Uh, they ain't kidding. This is a brief encounter. This is three pages, this story. <laughs> the writer is uh, Mimai Kin. Penciler is Trevor Vadin. Inker is Carl Potts. Letterer, Todd Klein. And the colorist is Bob LaRose. Aliens land on Earth and try to communicate with local life forms, uh, like a horse and a bull. They are chased off by the, by, by the rampaging bull that they try and talk to. After getting back into their ship, we see that the aliens look just like us. Dun-dun. That's the whole story. <laughs> That's it. Three whole pages. Um, it's a cute little thing. I don't know if this necessarily belongs at a best of, but I guess if you have three loose pages to fill in the book, maybe it's a good spot. Uh, the artwork is certainly very nice, and it's a nice change of pace in terms of the tone and everything else. Uh, the writer, this Mimai Kin person, I've never heard of him, her. Uh, Me either. I, I looked them up on Mike's Amazing World. They only have eight credits, all of huh. which are... Uh, DC anthology books. This person had some stories in Ghosts and some other things. So they they wrote some anthology stuff, and then th- that's it. And all around this time, like 80, 81, 82, and, and nothing again. So I have no idea who this Mimai Kin person is. But it's it's a cute little story. It's a you know, nice little diversion. Well, that's how you broke into stuff back then, was they, they gave right? you a backup in one of these books. And so either – We will get into that later on. Either they – what did you say? We will get into that later on. Oh, okay, and that's either how you uh, got in, you know, maybe it either didn't work out for him or whatever. Now, I think part of the reason this ended up in the book was when they, from, from the page we'll read at the end, um, by E. Nelson, Nelson Bridwell, it does sound like they broke everything down into categories. Yes. So they had to vote for their favorite 
you know, sci-fi story. So this came out as the favorite sci-fi story of the year. So that's why I think it made it in here is because they were going to have a sci-fi story no matter what. And the artistry you – you know, Ryan Daly's talked a lot about uh, Trevor Von Eden. You know, there's good Trevor Von Eden and there's bad Trevor Von Eden. This is exceptional Trevor Von Eden. The detail work here I – mean, you can put this up against, you know – Forgive the comparison, you Jim Lee, Todd, Todd McFarlane, but the detail work they used to put out in the 90s, you could compare this to that, and it, it's right up there with the detail. I mean, just the little fine lines, the the art, the details, the, the, the imagery, I love it. It's very different, and I, very different from his work if you've only seen it in, like, Thriller or something. Very different yeah. looking stuff. Yeah. And, and again, Rob talked about the gag, but it may, I, I think part – you got to explain is that the whole thing is when them talking to communicate to animal life is they think those are the dominant life forms. They're like, right. wow, yeah, what yeah. life is so different here. You know, these weird life forms are so weird. And then you find, as you said, you find out they're just humans. So that was cool. So very funny. Enjoyed it. All right. Up next is the man who was the world from DC comics presents number 24 starring Superman and dead man. It's a 17 pager written by Len Wein art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise hey, be his name. name. Letter of Ben Oda, and it colorist Adrian Roy. And by the way, I think I missed a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. The, the initial, so. When you did the initial list of artists, I didn't want to stop your role. So. I think, well, I think I, yeah, anyway, sorry about that, folks. Anyway, okay. So Metropolis is suffering from some unusual earthquakes. While Superman is saving the city, Dead Man is on the scene, courtesy of Ramakrishna. Uh, basically, he's sort of given up faith in his mission on Earth, and she says, well, do one more mission for me, and then I'll send you on to your final resting. Um, so we discover these quakes are being caused by a device embedded in the core of the Earth. A scientist who had a family heart linked this device in the core of the planet to his own heart. It allowed the rhythm of the planet to regulate his failing heart, effectively keeping him alive. Don't know why a pacemaker couldn't have done that for him, but whatever. Anyway, uh, side effect is, I guess, you know, with the planet keeping going forever, it's made him immortal. However, it fortunately, it didn't quite work like it was supposed to. It's worked the other way around. So as the scientist is suffering a heart attack, it shakes the city as well. Now, meanwhile, the B plot of the story focuses on a scheme to steal this immortal device by some mob goons for their elderly boss. And throughout the story, Deadman is leaping into bodies to try and help. And uh, most impressively is when Deadman battles death itself at the very end to keep this scientist alive long enough for Superman to search for the, 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 a solution. In the end, the Man of Steel gets the device from the center of the Earth, deactivates the device, saving Metropolis. So, uh, fun story. And then, uh, most importantly, it didn't show up in the recap, however. Most importantly, I've got to mention it. I didn't get it in my recap, but this story features Dr. Jeanette Clyburn. And I don't know if you know this or not, Rob, but did you know she's a criminal? I did not. Do you know why? Because she stole my heart. Oh, my God. <laughs> She is she is distractingly adorable in this story. <laughs> uh, so cute. So what do you think of this one? Well, this this is terrific. I think it's a great story. I, it is drawn within an inch of its life uh, yes. by JLGL, PBHN. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it, to me, it's like his stuff is such a pleasure to look at. And he really seemed to have a knack for dead man. Uh, yeah. And I think partly because uh, he was great at twisty angles and, and the pointing the camera in different spaces. And, of course, Dead Man is not moored to gravity. So he can just flip around and be in all sorts of crazy positions. And so that works really well for JLGL's uh, art. Uh, I love the final moment where he talks to Ramakrishna in the form of the squirrel. 
That's yeah. a great, great little detail. Uh, it's a terrific team up. I mean, it's funny they can't really do a team up with Dead Man, obviously, because nobody knows Dead Man is there. But it's sort of an unofficial team up, and it's a really fun story. It's just such a pleasure to look at. I mean, just again, I the story is great, but the artwork is to me is just it's just so beautiful. Every page is so beautiful, and yes, I do love Dr. Jenna Clyburn as well. She is, yeah. She, yeah. If you don't know, folks, she's she's this adorable, beautiful, sexy redhead who heads up the Star Labs office in Metropolis. She's always wearing the same mini skirt and shirt and just – and again, it's JLGL drawing her. Yeah. So she's breathtaking every time. And, I wonder uh, why oof. Superman went to Star Labs every single issue of DC Comics. Had <laughs> to make excuses to Lois. Now, I'm going to come in on the other side of this. Uh, I will say without a doubt the art is absolutely breathtaking. It is some of the – I mean put this in Simonson's art is probably the, the most entertaining throughout the whole book. However – the story, to me, was just kind of eh. I mean, this guy who who puts it, it, it feels to me almost like Star Trek Generations, where they had a bunch of ideas. The movie, the movie that is, where they had a bunch of ideas they wanted to get across, so they just sort of weaved a, a weak plot through it. I mean, the guy put a device in the middle of the planet to regulate his heart. Seriously, you know, uh, again, a pace. I, I mentioned earlier, a pacemaker couldn't have done that. In fact, Jeanette Clyburn puts a pacemaker in him later, just for that reason. Like, really. Um, the, the dead man stuff, well, I think it's artistically stunning. It doesn't really work for me. He, he wants to quit his mission as, as doing this, and at the end, after all this, he goes through, and he doesn't really get to do as much as he normally do, would do. He's, like, he's just he's following people around. He's not hopping in as many bodies as he normally would. And at the end, he's just like, nah, never mind. I just saved the world. I'm going to keep doing my job. It just it didn't. The sum didn't add up to that equation. That the equation did add, didn't add up to that sum for me, so that didn't really work. Now the positives again: artwork is gorgeous. Superman is totally a Bronze Age boss in this thing. I mean, he is not there to play, you know, and not even just artistically, but even in the story. Like there's times where he just gets pissed off, and he's like, "Somebody explain what's going on!" You know, it's just like, "Wow, okay." You know, he's going to tunnel to the center of the earth. Okay, wow, he is not messing around. So I did like that. Um, and, and I think the thing that really stays with me is if you compare this story from 1980 with the story in the front drawn by Kurt Swan, also a Superman story, no competition whatsoever. Right. I know there's a lot of Kurt Swan, Swan fans out there, but by 1980, uh, he probably shouldn't have been on a mainstream DC book. I'm sorry. It's not a nice thing to say, but you, you look at what could have, what, what other people were doing. No comparison. Okay. Fair enough. But, yeah, I, I think you're right. I, now that you're saying it, yeah, the story probably – I, I probably got swept along by the artwork. If, if, it had sure. been, if it had been drawn by somebody I was less a fan of, I might have been like, eh, yeah, I don't know. But to me, this it's the visual sweep is so perfect that it just didn't bother me. But you know, all the stuff you mentioned, you're like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so. All right. I like it. See, Rob just admitted I was right. That doesn't happen very often. Okay. That's one. <laughs> so uh, next up is uh, Sergeant Rock in a bridge called Charlie from Sergeant Rock number 337. By Robert Kaniger, of course. The editor is Joe Kubert. Did I mention I went to the Kubert School? Artist is Frank Redondo. <laughs> Not the last ten minutes. <laughs> Letterer is Esfid Malium, which has to be somebody's fake name. And, somebody, somebody losing a Scrabble. Yeah, something. And the colorist is uh, Tatiana Wood, I assume. And so uh, Rock, Sergeant Rock finds one of his KIAs lying dead with an iron cross pinned to his chest. A German officer approaches and tells Rock he is responsible. He explains that the GI left in charge of the small bridge, a young man named Charlie, kept an entire panzer division from crossing it with just the help of a few of his soldiers. All the men behind Charlie are eventually killed, but he kept fighting. After Charlie is wounded, the German lieutenant demanded the brave soldier be returned to his men. 
Rock and the lieutenant exchange a terse salute, and Rock apologizes to the dead Charlie for ultimately having to blow up the young man's bridge. So yeah, that's a, a bridge called Charlie. Um, it's a, I I had a little kind of a little tough time with this one in that it's so much happens in eleven pages that I found it just a little hard to follow. Like, just a little like, wait, what? Okay, who? Okay, because at one point it seems to be that there's there's is Charlie by himself? No, wait, there's other guys, and then you know, and the the there's a lot of um, time jumping because the whole thing is set in a flashback. Yeah. So I found it just a little confusing, and then the one part that I I don't know, this is such a minor detail, but it really jumped out at me is at the very end. I mean, the whole point is that the German lieutenant is showing the American a measure of respect. Mm -hmm. Uh, because he respects Charlie and how hard he fought and that Charlie treated the Germans with some level of respect. And so therefore they, they kind of, you know, it's like one of those things like, okay, we can treat each other as humans, even though we're on the opposite sides. So I I get that. But at the end of the story, Sergeant Rock actually salutes the German soldier that I don't know. I can't with like Sergeant Rock do that. I mean, he's the guy's still a Nazi. I I don't (laughs) know. I did. Would he actually salute him? Like maybe he could not shoot him. But I, I, that one panel just jumped out at me. And now, look, it's Robert Kaniger. So who am I to question Robert Kaniger saying what Sergeant Rock would or would not do? But that one little moment just felt a little weird to me. And, um, like, I kind of wish that if they were going to pick a story that was meant to be one of their year's best, that the story was about Sergeant Rock as opposed mm. to a guy that we've, that we've never met and will never meet again. Like, this Charlie is the, a one-off character. I would have preferred something about either, at the very least, some member of Easy Company uh, or the, one of the regulars uh, or about Sergeant Rock. So, I don't know. This one was just, to me, it's, it, it's, a, it's an okay story. To me, it's just an odd choice for a best of. Interesting. Well, it sounds like this is the only Sergeant Rock story really in the running. In the back, they talk about the stories that were in the running, right. and all the war stories come from books, uh, the Unknown Soldier book. Right. Uh, so two of them about the Unknown Soldier, one of them not about the Unknown Soldier at all, but just from that book. So it sounds like this was the only Rock even considered that year. Um, Which is, that seems weird to me because, I mean, they, you know, there's other Sergeant Rock stories. Now, the, the strange thing is I'm very much on the opposite. I love this thing. Hmm. Uh, I, I see what you're talking about with the time jumps. I, I can kind of get that. That may, I see what you mean. Now, there's another thing you didn't mention just briefly. As far as the, the respect building, one of the things Charlie did was he allowed the Germans. They said, they came over and said, look, we're not coming to surrender, but we'd like to collect our dead right, and bring right, them right. back. And Charlie said, sure, collect your dead, and you go back, and that's fine. So there was, again, building that respect. I I just love this thing, and I don't. Maybe it's just because I don't read enough war comics, so this was just different for me. But wow, I um, it really, really resonated with me. I guess I, I didn't write down a lot of notes on it. Just the art I thought was great. The story was great. I, I enjoyed. It. I kind of like it when it's not when the main character's not you know like someone that, who you expect to so seeing this guy named Charlie and why he died and everything. I don't know. It it just it it sat well with me. I guess is ultimately what I'm trying to say. I'm going around and around in circles trying to say that. All right, fair enough. All right. Speaking of stories that don't sit well with me, uh, Starlight Starbright, farthest star I see tonight. Did I show my hand too early? Uh, Featuring the Legion of Superheroes. Now, this is from DC Special Series number 21, also called Superstar Holiday Special, 1980, 1980, that is. Twelve pages written by Paul Levitz, uh, penciler, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. 
inker Dick Giordano, letter Ben Oda, and colorist Adrian Roy. So, okay, right off the bat, you know it's artistically gorgeous. Same sort of thing as DC Comics Presents. Stunning art. Uh, the story is Superboy visits the Legion in the 30th century on Christmas Eve. The Boy of Steel learns a little bit about 30th century holiday traditions, and we learn that Colossal Boy is Jewish. And eventually, uh, they, he settles on a challenge. He, he sets a challenge for the Legion. He says, uh, I bet you guys... Can't using your supercomputers can't find the star that blazed over Bethlehem on that Christmas. So he doesn't actually come right out and say the the, the star that led the you know the wise men to Jesus and all that, but he he makes it pretty obvious that's what he's talking about. And they're talking about Christmas anyway. So uh, Lightning Lad thinks he's pinpointed the place, and so the Legion goes star hopping. When they arrive across the galaxy, they don't find a star, but instead they find a planet with these animal-like inhabitants. Now, life on this planet is on the verge of extinction, unfortunately, due to an ice age. However, uh, the, the Legion intervenes, and using their telepathic earplugs, Superboy devises a way for these animals to talk to each other so they can plan to work together to help them survive the Ice Age. And uh, so in the end, while they didn't find the guiding star to Bethlehem, the, the Legion did provide help and care to these needy lives, and isn't that what Christmas is all about? Well, I already said my... <laughs> what do you think of this one, Rob? <laughs> see, now, I, see, I actually like this story. We're sp- okay. We're switching, we're switching posts here. Again, part of it, I think, is the art. The art yeah. is just so perfect. And uh, Phantom Girl's hip-hugger outfit. Yep. Hubba hubba. hubba. Uh, <laughs> that is great. But uh, I, I don't know. I think, it's, I think it's cute. It's charming. And again, I've mentioned this. I mentioned at the top of this episode. I'm a sucker for all the heroes getting together and just pounding around and having a party. I like that, and this story literally ends with the Legion turning to the camera and wishing us all a happy holiday, like turning to the reader, and I'm, yep. I'm a sucker for those. So it's it's a cute little throwaway story. I liked it. Um, folks, I think you just heard it here. This is the moment where Rob becomes a Legion fan uh, right right <laughs> if now. They, if they were all this good, I would have, yes, probably would have really liked it. It took JLGL drawing Saturn Girl in the in Phantom, Girl, Phantom Girl. Well, like you mentioned Phantom Girl, but we're going to talk about Saturn Girl in a okay, minute, yeah. I think. Uh, it took drawing the ladies. Uh, that's what finally did it. So, yeah. Um, I don't. I like Christmas stories. I really do. I like Christmas stories and comics. I think they're a lot of fun. This one just didn't, like, I felt ultimately that I like them helping the aliens, but I don't feel like the Christmas premise paid off. It doesn't, again, it's sort of like the what I talked about earlier. It doesn't feel like the equation added up to the result they wanted. I didn't get the warm and fuzzy at the end with Christmas. I, the connection from the beginning of the story to the end just didn't quite work for me. Now, things I did like, I liked in the beginning how they, they come across Mistletoe and Super, I'm sorry, Phantom Girl sneaks out and kisses Superman, a Superboy in the cheek. I thought that was adorable. Superboy even has a, because she says, I'm sorry if I surprised you. And he says, I don't know if Ultra Boy ever makes you apologize for kissing him, but if he does, you can tell him from me that he's crazy. <laughs> it's like, that's an adorable kind of dialogue. I really like that. You talked about Phantom Girl's costume. Let's talk about Saturn Girl's costume, which is pretty much boots and not much else. Speaking um, of warm and fuzzy. Man, I mean, again, you guys, you know how I roll here. You know, Phantom Girl and Saturn Girl are smoking hot here, but even I'm going to say, girls, put some clothes on. This is crazy. I mean, all the guys are fully dressed. Heck, Wildfire, you can't see an ounce of anything because he's you know just made of energy. Well, I mean, so, there was that costume Cosmic Boy had where he he looks like a male stripper. He's not in this story, true. but there is he that one costume was you know crazy well, revealing. Saturn Girl sitting there in like less than a bathing suit, and sitting next to her is her husband, who is covered literally head to toe. Right. All you can, the only skin showing is his, you know, his face. I mean, it's just come on, it's, it's a bit much. But anyway, um, what else? Uh, I, I liked the usage of the telepathic earplugs. I thought that was a clever idea to get the aliens to talk to each other. It's like, oh, that's actually pretty smart. But I do think it's kind of funny that everyone is doing Superboy's bidding, digging out the cave, and Superboy won't tell anybody why. 
It's just like they got to trust him. I was like, hey, this is a little example of Superman dickery when he was a boy. <laughs> What's the name <laughs> of this the, comic? That... It's Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. Thank you very much. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, uh, that's all I got on this one. Let's this move on. The, is this the story? Well, is this the story that uh, was first mentioned that Colossal Boy is Jewish? That's the one. I, that's the one. I'm pretty sure. I don't know that for a fact, okay. but I had always heard that it's revealed he's Jewish just in like a throwaway panel in a holiday comic. So oh, well, I figured this, this has got to be, be it. it. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's, it, that's my Fred, assumption. Fred Hembeck did a great bit yes. about that in one of his books, one of his solo comics about Colossal Boy. Uh, you know, he wrote all of the superheroes as if they were just employees for DC and Marvel. And so he, <laughs> he wrote Colossal Boy as being told from the guys back at the office that he's retroactively Jewish. And, mm-hmm. uh, and he had this whole gag about that he's wearing a yarmulke, and then when he enlarges, the yarmulke falls off because it doesn't grow at the same size. It was all this kind of stuff. <laughs> so this has to be that comic because it, is, it literally does have that where they go through all the other characters who don't celebrate Christmas as such. Like yep. Chameleon Boy and then Colossal Boy and stuff like that. So, okay, that's, that's a nice little bit of history. All right. Cool. Moving on. The next story is The Vow of a Samurai. And this is a Jonah Hex story. It's from Jonah Hex number 39. It's 17 pages, written by Michael Fleischer, art by Tony Dezenuga. Dezen. De- De- Why can't I say that? Tony Dezenuga. Please tell me how to say his name. I always heard it was Dezenuga. There you go. You know, go. Let's go with that. Dezenuga, whichever one. Okay. Uh, Letter Shelley Lefferman and colors Bob LaRose. Okay. So Jonah Hex is chasing the Blair Pharaoh gang, and he's planning to bring them to justice. Hex visits a small town along the way and ends up in a large-scale brawl in the local saloon, as you would expect. There, Hex befriends a samurai warrior who also happens to be looking for the Blair Pharaoh gang. Apparently, the Pharaoh gang kidnapped the samurai's daughter a year ago, and the samurai's been working to chase them down ever since. Hex and the samurai team up, and while they're riding together, the samurai explains to Hex that if he fails to recover his daughter and kill Blair Pharaoh, the samurai will have to commit seppuku, ritual suicide. And the samurai asks, asks Hex to be his second. And what that means is that if, this, um, if he commits seppuku, the samurai will stab himself in the stomach and do all these ritual cuts and stuff, and the second would then bring a merciful end by decapitating the samurai. Hex is horrified by this idea, but ultimately, after a series of events, agrees to help. When they do catch up with the Blair Pharaoh gang, they discover the daughter is still alive, but has fallen in love with Pharaoh over the course of the year, and has even had a child, uh, you know, even uh, delivered his child. After they wipe out Pharaoh's gang, uh, the Hoods, the samurai then commits, and the samurai sees that the daughter is now in love with uh, Pharaoh, he commits seppuku, and Hex keeps his promise and ends the samurai's suffering. But uh, Blair Pharaoh then shows how dastardly he is by threatening this this girl, you know, the samurai's daughter, his own wife, the, the mother of his child. Hex does an amazing move, killing Blair Pharaoh, but leaving the girl and child unharmed. In the end, Hex just rides away, leaving the girl to, and, and the baby to mourn over the dead husband's body. What do you think of this one? Uh, well, I mean, it's Michael Fleischer, so it's super dark, of course, because that's okay. what he, what he, where he, how he rolled. Um, I, I think it was pretty good. I like having Jonah Hex and a samurai is this kind of weird, you know, a little like really, but mm-hmm. I think it kind of works. It's the, the, it almost feels like a little rushed at the end, but it's so grim. Like the final couple panels, especially are go over. It all, it all happens so quickly um, that maybe it could have ex- 
could have gone on a little longer, but maybe not. Maybe it works better if it's just end. But I mean, those last two panels of the woman cradling the dead guy and Jonah Hex is standing there with the smoking gun, and then the next panel he's really just riding off. Yep. It's like wow, that is that is grim. Uh, and I I I don't know. Again, this is like kind of like me questioning Robert Kaniger writing Sergeant Rock. I can't question Michael Fleischer writing. Jonah Hex because Michael Fletcher I think just like pretty much wrote every Jonah Hex comic mm-hmm. but like I don't know like would Jonah Hex even care about a guy's ritual like I got the sex that Jonah Hex was, didn't care about any of that stuff like honor or dignity he was he didn't he just was literally like whatever I gotta do stay alive so I didn't know if I totally bought that he would like cut the guy's head off as as part of the ritual I would just think Jonah Hex would, would not care one way or the other but again who am I to question Michael Fletcher Michael Fletcher's characterization of Jonah Hex. Well, I I think you're right to some extent. He did tell the guy, forget it. I'm not doing it. He didn't care. Right. But then uh, they go to this house and they get attacked by Native Americans and Hex is knocked out. And the samurai saves him by killing six of the, the Native Americans. And that's when he said, Jonah Hex says, wow, you know, you really did me a solid. So, okay, I'll yeah, return I guess the favor. So. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, you're right. That's fair. So um, you should just keep practicing saying that. But uh, it's funny, again, Another one of the stories that really spoke to me in this comic. I really enjoyed this one. Again, probably because it's just so different from what I normally read uh, in the darkness and just, oh, wow, powerful. And also, I mean, it's 1980, folks. They, America is obsessed with things like samurais. That's the kind of culture that, you know, it's Saturday Night Live, you know, uh, with John Belushi playing the samurai character. You know, it's it's the kind of thing that people was on people's mind at the time. So I could see why this story, why they brought this kind of concept into a Jonah Hex comic, because people are talking about it. So I, I really enjoyed it. Okay. All right. All right. Well, next up is uh, from The Unexpected, number 205, Bruce the Barbarian. Eight pages, written by our pal, J.M. DeMatteis, and the artist is Vic Catan Jr. A barbarian riding a horned beast rescues a comely maiden from being devoured by a two-headed demon. The maiden, grateful being rescued, offers her hero a kiss and eternal servitude. But when they're interrupted by a phone call, turns out this, <laughs> turns out this fantastic scenario is all in the mind of a skinny nerd named Bruce who lives in a rundown apartment. Bruce is a DJ for a low-rated radio show, and he uses the drudgery of his life as inspiration for his flights of fancy. He mentions this to his ex-girlfriend, Cornelia, who is concerned for Bruce's sanity. Later, she stops by Bruce's apartment, and Bruce, lost in his fantasy, accidentally kills her. Bruce wakes up, so upset over what he's done, that hours later, when the police arrive to investigate the bizarre noises they hear coming from the apartment, they see Bruce being devoured by one of the creatures from his own fantasies. Bruce the Barbarian, weird-ass story. Now, I was so uh, curious about this. I wrote Jim DeMatteis and asked him about it. Really? Um, yes, okay. because I was like, I, it's, you, it's really easy to go. If you, if you look at the, um, the story itself, it's very easy to miss his credit because it's really buried on the, the splash yeah. page. And, and, of course, these books are already small enough, and you have to squint really hard and be like, oh, this is written by Jim, <laughs> Jim DeMatteis. So I was curious. I wrote to I said, "Hey, uh, James D, do you remember this story?" And he wrote back, "Yes, I do remember it." And so I said, "Did you pitch this, or did DC come to you and say, you know, we need eight pages? You know, do you have anything?" Mm. So he just wrote back and said, uh, "I was writing lots of stories for these anthologies. This was my comic book school, learning from editors like Paul Levitz, Jackie Harris, and Len Wein, and I was always pitching them stories. This was one of many." Glad you found it entertaining. I was a newbie and had so much to learn as a writer. So <laughs> comments from JMD. Uh, I actually really like this story. I think it's cool. I, I think it doesn't have the normal trappings you would expect. Uh, the idea that the hero 
uh, is um, like kills himself over the guilt. Like that's unusual. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I like the idea that uh, Cornelia is his ex girlfriend as opposed to a woman that he you know, like idolizes from afar and can't get like mm-hmm. that. So, you know, so in just eight pages, there's a lot of interesting little beats to it. Uh, art wise, I'm a little shaky on Vic Catan because like in the final panel where we see Bruce is being devoured by the creature, you can't exactly tell what's going on. Like, is that a painting they're looking at? Is it a drawing? Is it hmm. like, like what exactly are they looking at? And right. You can't really tell what, what's going on there, but you, you know, you just have to kind of roll with it and say, okay, I guess it's like an impression on a wall. It, it, that's a little unclear, but you just know that Bruce has succumbed to his own fantasy. So that's basically it. So it's a dark, you know, grim little tale. Well, I think it's, I was going to say, you talk about dark with Jonah Hex, man, this one. Oof. Um, I think what's actually happening is I think it's legitimately happening right in front of them. Because, like, the old lady, the, the, the landlord, actually says it sounds like all of the demons of hell unleashed right. are in there. Right. And then, well, when, when Cornelius shows up, though, she doesn't get killed by Bruce directly. What happens is she looks in there and she sees Bruce riding a dragon. And she goes, right. oh, my, oh, dear God, it's true. So Bruce has some sort of power of some sort, actually, to make all this stuff come I real. Yes, I guess. I guess the and then all right, here, here's an artistic question I got for you on the last page, and maybe I'm just maybe it's just a little bit of inking differences. But the first panel shows Bruce as a, a barbarian, and Cornelia is on the ground dead. Right. Right. The next panel, Bruce has been transformed back to human, and then Cornelia is still in the foreground in the exact same pose, but she looks a little more voluptuous and cartoony there. Like her eyes have more, uh, her, her breasts are a little more accented, her hair is more accented. Hmm. Is that just inking change or is that genuine like they're trying to show some difference, like she's transformed a little more in real life? Uh, you know, I didn't even notice that, but you're right. I wonder if that isn't the the latter. Uh, that's yeah. not, it's not an inking thing. It's an actual, you know, change of reality to fantasy. So That's kind of what I'm wondering. The thing, the thing that throws me is that in the last panel, like if it's really yeah. happening in front of them, the two mm-hmm. cops, they look like they're just sort of standing there looking at it. Like you think they would be like waving their arms and like, oh, you know, oh my God, because they're looking at, you know, horned demons in the middle of this guy's apartment. They just look, they look kind of passive, which made well, me we're just seeing them in the back. Their, fa- their faces could be horrified. That's true. That's true. Okay. Yeah. And it's there's not, a lot to fill in that panel, too. Yeah. They had to put Abel in the panel, too. I mean, yeah. just it's pretty pretty packed. Either way, fun little story. Um, creepy, creepy dark. And I, I, I liked how you described it. Like, I like that Cornelia is the ex-girlfriend rather than just some girl he's chasing. I like the, the, the juxtaposition of him as this warrior barbarian versus his, his skawky nerd in his crappy apartment. I just think that's really clever. So. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be reflective of the people reading the comics. You know? So. <laughs> but, Oh, that's right. You bought comics back then. I forgot. Okay, yeah. Ba-dum-bum. All right. Going on to our last one. The Secret World. Now, we talked about the Superman story in the front end. Remember where Pa Kent came back to life? And if you think about it, by the way, this is 1980. So that means the Dukes of Hazzard was on at this point. So uh, Bo, Bo Duke, was that right? Is it Bo or Luke that Bo, went on? To- Bo and Luke. Which one went on to be on Smallville, though? It's Pa Kent. Oh, I think that was, I think it was Bo. I think John Schneider was Bo, I believe. I think he was Bo. So Bo was on TV? Went on to be Pa Kent? Look at that. All right. Uh, Secret World of Jonathan Kent. It's a Superman story from Action Comics number 508. This is the continuation. This, the next issue uh, is being reprinted here. Pages 17, uh, 17 pages. Writer Carrie Bates. Penciler Kurt Swan. Inks by Frank Chiamonte. Letter Ben Oda. Colors by Gene D'Angelo. I think that's the same crew that did the first half. So we pick up where we left off. Uh, right from the start, the difference here is the mystery is sort of 
revealed. We, the reader knows out of the gate that Jonathan Kent knows he is not supposed to be alive and that he's fabricating some kind of truth for Clark. So in the first half, we're just, we were left to wonder. Now we know that Jonathan's in on it. Meanwhile, Superman is dealing again with this B plot of Starshine and his please power. Uh, and, and, and Starshine has managed to run out everyone out of town. That's over 30 years old out of Metropolis. Everyone over 30 has just been marched out and they're basically hanging around the outskirts of town. And then we discover the secret of the return of Jonathan Kent. Back when Superboy was still operating in Smallville, Pa Kent helped some aliens. And that's because comics. That's the way that works. And uh, actually is, is in a issue of the New Adventures of Superboy, apparently, as well. And in return, these aliens granted Jonathan Kent oh, his wish. And his wish was to see his son grown up. That's why Pa Kent is here in Metropolis now. But here's the trick. It's only for 30 hours. So uh, also this – it turns out this alien power accidentally affected Starshine when Pa Kent materialized in 1980, and that's how he gained this police power. So Superman um, Superman goes to confront Starshine. He ends up getting hurt and comes back to his apartment, and Pa Kent does the unthinkable. He calls Lois Lane and gets her over there to comfort Superman, totally outing Superman's secret identity to Lois Lane. I mean like for realsies. This, it just tells her that – he's like, we don't have time to mess around with this. Yeah, he's Superman. And it's like, oh my gosh. And uh, Lois in the end uh, sort of confides in Pa Kent that maybe she already knew he was Superman. And in the end, Starshine is defeated. Pa Kent is returned back to time and the clock actually rolls back a day and everyone forgets Pa Kent's visit. And that day where father and son were reunited never happened. And Superman's secret is safe then. Even Clark's memory fades, but for some unknown reason, he feels closer to his foster father than ever. What'd you think? Okay. Uh, the minute okay, I mean look this whole prim, the, you know from the first part of the story where it's Pa Kent is alive again you're like well this okay this is already weird but the minute the aliens show up I, yeah. I just think like this thing it not only do you, is the goofy meter up to 11 it, it breaks the goofy meter is broken there's springs flying out there's smoke and, and just you know and this is just I, I, I feel like a grump like just being like this is so stupid this story but because if you grew up on superman i think you probably found this very charming i bet they did yeah and so i don't want to be too too harsh on it um i i just this the this these were the kinds of stories that made me kind of be like i don't really read superman comics at the time like (laughs) i was like okay give give me superman and justice league and give me superman and dc comics presents and the movies but we've got aliens and got hippies and the, and the, the the panel of Superman kneeling at the feet of the hippie is just unpleasant and whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, I really am questioning the idea of not only giving this one selection in this collection, giving it two. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this really feels like a Silver Age story transplanted into 1980. It, it really does. Now, there for those Superman fans who are screaming at their Zonophone and have just – and that's a Michael Bailey reference. They've had enough of us <laughs> at this point. I will say the, the moments with Pot Kent where him and Clark are genuinely being father and son are very touching. It's even reinforced harder in this one because like Clark's reading letters that have materialized, that they've written back and forth over the last 30 years. And he's like, I, I never wrote these letters. What is this about? And uh, it, it's very touching. Th- those are great moments. When Pa Kent helps come up with a reason for Clark to sneak out of the room. Oh, can you go fill my prescription? It's like it's a trained trick they used to use to let Superboy get away when he needed to get away from Lana or a secret. You know, it's just – I didn't explain that very well, but if you read the story, you know what I mean. It's – 
it's very that's very touching and endearing. But overall, uh, especially when you put it, you smack dab it in the same volume with JLGL drawing Superman, it just doesn't work. So. Anyway, moving on. So uh, at the very end here, you get a story behind this issue by E. Nelson Bridwell, and it talks about how they selected the various stories. It talks about the categories. They had one category for weird slash mystery. They had a category for Western, one for sci-fi, one for war, one for other, which is like where all the superhero stuff falls. They almost printed a super friend story with Plastic Man, dude. How great would that have been? Max Romero is pounding the desk in frustration. (laughs) <laughs> also, DC Comics Presents with Phantom Stranger almost made it in here, too. Mm. Oh, that would have been great. So, anyway, um, we started and ended on a bit of a dud. But other than that, I felt like this was pound for pound, 128 pages of fun. Really enjoyed this. Such a great, diverse thing. Again, war, aliens, western, all these different things. I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. What, what, if you could pick your three favorite stories... And I only asked that because I prepared for this question. If you could pick your three favorite stories, what would you pick? Uh, the Tales of Gotham City. Okay. Uh, the Batman. Okay. And the Unexpected. Those are my three favorites. I, That's I do the, have, the, the Bruce the Barbarian? Bruce, Bruce Barbarian, yeah. Okay. I do, do have one comment, though, I wanted to make before you just kept jabbering on and railroading me. Is uh, <laughs> in e. Nelson Birdwell, when he talks about the stories selected – at no point do they mention any of the other superheroes that they publish. It seems to be it's either Superman or Batman or genre. And hmm. that's it. And it's like, well, don't you guys also publish Justice League and Wonder Woman and Green Lantern and Flash and like like what like they don't even mention the any of the other characters, which is very <laughs> strange to me. Cuz look at all the other runner-ups. The other runner-ups were um, uh, Superman Family, DC Comics Presents, Super Friends, Another Superman, Another Superman, World of Krypton, Legend of Batman. It's like, guys, you do have other characters than just those two heroes. That seems kind of weird to me. So, uh, you know, I think that, it, like, why is it so, if it's superheroes, it's Superman or Batman. Like, why can't yeah, that's interesting. Other heroes? That, that now, also, also on this page, they reprint a JLGL. Uh, image which is gorgeous, which I assume is from um, is that from the a previous year's top ten? Is that that's, what that is? That's Dick Giordano, actually, not GL. Is it really? Yeah, that's Giordano. Yeah, oh, it's wow. from a previous uh, year's best cover, which is all the here again, once again, all the heroes getting together in a party. I can't, I'm always and uh, happy about that. Uh, yeah, it's got you've got Lois Lane, the Wonder Twins, Hawkman. Aquaman sitting next to Green Arrow, which is unlikely. Mm-hmm. Black Canary sitting next to Warlord. Hands off, Travis. Uh, elongated <laughs> Man, uh, Kane, the Demon, Dead Man, which is funny. I like that Dead Man is sitting there because it's like, shouldn't somebody else be sitting there? Because right. nobody knows that seat's filled. Scalp Hunter, Jonah Hex, Supergirl, they're all like waiting to see who's announced as the top 10 stories. I love this image. It's so I think, fun. I think Batgirl's about to give Kane a, a wet willy, actually, is what's going to happen there. <laughs> It's but, nice that uh, Hawkman's in the back, so nobody has to sit behind his giant wing. Right. Well, they all complain. He probably actually had to move. And you see elongated man's putting his face right in front of uh, Wonder Woman. What is that? Uh, J- the the haunted tank guy. Oh, Jeb Stewart. Yeah, from the haunted. Yeah. Or, or no, that's not Jeb Stewart, but yeah, one of the characters from the haunted tank. Yeah. Yep. And the reason I want to bring this up was simply because you mentioned the other things they published. Yeah. And here they all are. I mean, Wonder Woman, for goodness' sake, it's not even mentioned in here. Really? You yeah. know, and just that's a bit disappointing, but. Uh, enough criticisms, folks. It's a lot of fun. Again, it's uh, Best of DC Volume 11. It's got a yellow cover with a giant number 10 on it. Not an exciting cover. 
great stories inside. Definitely pick it up. I love this, and I think in the future we're probably going to pick a few more of these, uh, you know, sort of best of years, so you get a wide variety of topics. I thought it was a lot of fun. And you, know, you, have to, you have to remember, it served a purpose because this is in an era of newsstand distribution. So if you missed the comic, it was gone. Yeah. So you know, th- this is what these were. This was a chance to like, oh, I missed. I when what was this issue of Jonah Hex? I don't even remember seeing that on the newsstand. Oh, here it is. So that's you know that these things. These things don't serve a purpose anymore now that everything is pr- internally in print and digital and everything else. But at the time, it, th- this just really worked as, you know, catching up on stuff you might have missed. So, yeah, this is – we were – you know, if we were a little negative about some of the stories, it's still a great little book. Yeah. I mean these were early trade paperbacks. Mm-hmm. That's what it boils down to. So, All right, folks. Well, why don't we take a quick podcast from a break, and when we come back on the other side, we will do your listener feedback. <laughs> Hey, I'm Jen. And I'm Sean. We're here to tell you about our podcast, Worst Collection Ever. And this is the show where we tell you about the worst comic book collection in existence. And it just happens to belong to us. We have some of the worst comics from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They're bad. They don't, they're not worth anything. No good. Why do we Very own them? Bad. I own a number of issues of Terror, Inc. and Guy Gardner. Basically we go around to local comic book stores and we buy everything we can out of dollar boxes we tell you about the weird stuff in them we tell you about stuff that's related to them we go into tangents and we're very uninformed so oh my god totally but totally check out our podcast because you'll hear us just talk and joke about marvel books and dc books from god only knows when that's right it's our show worst collection ever every tuesday on itunes stitcher anywhere you get your podcasts Download, rate, subscribe, tell a friend. It'll be good and terrible, but good. Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Black Canary and Zatanna, together in one podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and I've got a thing for superheroes in fishnet stockings. That's why I started Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Join me every two weeks as I celebrate the Blonde Bombshell and the Mistress of Magic in their exciting adventures published by DC Comics. Power of Fishnets. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And we're back, folks, for your feedback on the first volume of Digest Cast number one. And like the book itself, we're going to try and keep the feedback kind of short. So that's going to do it. Thanks for listening, folks. Goodbye. <laughs> wow, we no. came all the way through commercials just for that. <laughs> yeah, one of the comments I saw, and you guys had an interesting conversation on Facebook about uh, formats and uh, all the different formats that you guys have. You know, we've got the Treasury Cast, we've got the Digest Cast, and they started picking on Rob, saying, "You know, what's next?" And uh, I guess all this left is what the Marvel Magazine Cast. Is that right? I will absolutely, if I had any moments of free time, I would do a podcasting Hulk podcast in a minute because that magazine was <laughs> the bomb. So I would absolutely do that.
Some of the other ones suggested were Magcast and Deadly Casts of Kung Fu. <laughs> now, you know what I would do? I would do a cast on the Punisher magazine. That's actually how I read the early Punishers. And seeing like Jim Lee's style, because uh, you know he drew a lot of those early Punisher monthly books, seeing Jim Lee draw back when he actually drew stuff rather than drew posters, um, those Punisher books in black and white, you know, a bit of a larger size, that was pretty cool. Those were great. Those stories were gritty. That was a great way to read those books. Oh, there's a All lot right. of great stuff in there. If, you, if yeah. somebody ever did a Marvel Magazine podcast, that'd be a great magazine. They did. There's a, tons of great stuff back to be found in those pages. Look at us. We're just throwing seeds out there for you people. Yeah. Pick them up. Run with it. it. All right. Up next, uh, we are going to do some iTunes reviews. Folks, Digest Cast is out on iTunes. Please go out there and leave us a review. You can, uh, find, that on, you can find us on Stitcher, too, right? I believe so. Yeah, so uh, please leave us a review. It helps raise the profile of the show and helps people find us. So, Rob? Yes, we have an iTunes review from Al Gerning, formerly, sadly, of the All-Star Comics Review Podcast. He says, public pronouncement. This popular pair of podcasting princes promoted, <laughs> promoted, this, promoted this program a while ago, and I could not wait to partake. The pocket-sized publications that DC has produced in the past have always been a passion of mine. The pilot episode is perfect because it peaks at the premier posse of powerful protagonists of the Golden Age, the Justice Society of America, pleasurable performance by the podcasting party. Valkyries are a prepossessing sight. That's a, oh hell, that's a hell of a review. Thank you, <laughs> That is crazy, Al. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Again, folks, head out to iTunes and leave us a review if you don't mind. It would be greatly appreciated. Now, everybody, don't be intimidated. You don't have to write them that well. You can just give us five <laughs> stars and say, great show. You don't have to go all the way out and do the whole, you know, that, that whole alliteration thing. So, just But if you do do it, that would be awesome. That's great, but you don't, don't be intimidated is what I'm trying to say. All right. Next comment comes from uh, – now, by the way, it's fair to say we're just picking and choosing comments. We took – most of all the comments here uh, – and I wasn't kidding when I said we're going to try to make the feedback a little bit shorter. It's coming from our website. So if you really want to be involved in the conversation, folks, and we want you to, go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Go out to the Digest Cast page and leave your comments there. That will guarantee they'll get mentioned on the show, and we'll read some portion of it as best as we can. So, heard from our buddy Zoom Yukinori, who works uh, for the C- for CBR. The line is drawn, and soon he'll be joining the Fire and Water Podcast Network. So excited about that. He's our green I- arrow. He is. He is. Uh, I posed the question of, was there any comics that were published as a comic book and a treasury and a digest? Because I thought it might be fun. We could do like a bit of a crossover. And he came back with the Daughter of the Demon story. And Batman uh, number 232 was printed as a regular comic and as a treasury in limited, limited collector edition C51 and a digest, which is Best of DC Digest number 51. So now you've already covered that uh, treasury, haven't you? Yes. Okay. Well, forget you then. Anyway, um... <laughs> Ken Hommel, Hommel, Hommel uh, then was kind enough to come back with several more that have done. So he said Night of the Reaper, which is Batman 237, was also in limited collector's edition C52 and Best of DC Digest number 51. The Demon Within was in House of Mystery number 201. It was in the collector's edition number 52. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, Treasury limited collector's edition 52 and dc special ribbon digest number 24 a swinging christmas carol which was teen titans number 13 was in uh limited uh, treasury c34 which was christmas with the superheroes and best of dc number 22 christmas with the superheroes oh look at that and, oh we found one more bernie Wrightson was a uh, nightmare house of mystery 186 limited collector's edition c23 and dc special blue ribbon digest number 17 now have you covered all of those already on your treasury cast show we've done we didn't do D- 
demon within. We did that on Ryan's show. We did that on Midnight, the podcasting hour. We did do the swinging Christmas Carol. Chris and I did that one, okay. and we did do the the Rachel Ghoul story. I kind of misunderstood the question a little. And now that I see everybody's responses, I thought what you when you asked about it was like, did DC ever basically just take the same collection of stories and do them as a treasury and as a digest, which oh. they they have not. Now that I see people's responses, I realize that clearly that's what you were asking was about individual stories, not like Correct. one book. But at the yeah. time, in the, in the moment, that's how I answered it. But the answer to that is no, they didn't do the same. They, you know, it wasn't like they just took the Superman versus Flash treasury and shrunk it way down and made it a digest or something like that. So now I understand. But yeah, there's so there's a bunch of stories that have gone through various formats. All right. Well, we should uh, ones that you haven't covered on Treasury Cast. We should try and figure out somebody to like you know, sync all that up. It'd be fun. Yeah, we can do that. Sure. Uh, okay. We got a letter from Ryan Daly from our own network, Power Fishnets, giving those Star Wars. It's been like the podcasting hour, Nightcast, and the uh, Deadly Cast of Kung Fu show that's coming up. He says, <laughs> "Excellent first episode, guys. Funny you joked about me being the eBay seller, price gouging Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love, because I did, in fact, get it from eBay only a couple of months before Shag would have been searching for it. And yes, <laughs> it was a little pricey, but it was still a hell of a lot cheaper than buying the first issue of Doorway to Nightmare, which is reprinted in DMOFL and includes the first appearance." of Madame Xanadu. Woo! And we're going to be covering that sooner or later, folks. I can't wait to do that. Considering the price I paid for that volume, we're going to cover it. Uh, Ryan continues, because uh, we talked about Black Canary and Starman and their hinted at romance in that reprint comic, and then later on James Robinson took it full bore. He says, Black Canary and Starman teamed up in the previous issue of The Brave and the Bold as well, with the same creative team. That issue did include Dinah's husband, Larry Lance, but there was still subtle bits of chemistry between the heroes that helped fuel James Robinson's retcon. Also, they fought Starman's nemesis, The Mist, in that issue. And Chris Franklin and I covered both of those stories on episode 19 of Flowers and Fishnets, the Black Canary podcast, in tribute to Murphy Anderson. Nice. Then we heard from Gord Tolton, uh, who has a blog, which is a Ranger Gord's Roundup, a history and general musings of the past and present. And Gord says uh, he could he recalls a time before archive editions when the only way to see all-star comics was in reprint editions such as the Digest or 100-page Super Spectaculars and uh, the adaptations that Roy Thomas did in All-Star Squadron. And whenever the JSA appeared in modern comics, we as the readers pretty much had to take the writer's word for how awesome the heroes were because, you know, we couldn't read those old stories. And as the DC writer, and he goes on to say, and the DC writers weren't lying. While I share modern readers' trepidations towards 1940s materials, I still love them. There's such an economy of storytelling that the writers and artists could easily get a point across without a lot of filler exposition. Well put in, Gord, and apparently I can't pronounce any or say any of that, but you put it very succinctly. Uh, and, and that 1940s story was really exceptional and just moved at a breakneck pace, and I just loved it. Uh, we got a message from little Russell Burbage from the Legion of Super Blockers and the Friends of Justice blog. He says, Rob, it sounds like you said that Joe Staten and Bob Layton only worked together on this one story. Of course, they were the permanent art team on All-Star Comics for nearly a year. They drew the first Huntress story, for example. When Layton left All-Star Comics and replaced by Joe Giella, shudder. Nowhere near as good. Shag, the cover you're thinking of is Alter Ego number 109. It's a recycle of this digest illustration in super size and better colors. Yeah, I completely blanked that uh, Staten and Layton, which is so fun to say, uh, <laughs> worked together on All-Star Comics for a little while. I don't know why I said that this was the only one they did together. I think I was more just saying it out loud as opposed to making a statement. Um, because, yeah, they did the book together. and they, they just are – they were a great team. I love their stuff together. Beautiful. 
Sounds like you just said a lot of wrong things in the first episode. <laughs> no, well, I'm used happens. to it. Yeah. I, I'm used to it. Yeah, those, uh, and I love that. I'd forgotten those all-star comics that he did together. Oh, love that all-star comics run. So good. And thank you. Yes, the alter ego cover was where I was had seen that image repurposed. Thank you, Russell. All right. Uh, message from David Ace Gutierrez, Pod Dylan executive producer for now. And late night sexting king. He says, following up on the Starman Canary affair, I asked Robinson if he got any flack for it. He said he didn't, but that it was written prior to social media. Had he written it today, Robinson suspects the reception may have been different. Adultery is fun? I guess that's one way to go. You're covering Archie books, right? Uh, I think David is having a laugh at our expense. I don't think we're going to be covering any Archie Digest because what is there to say about Archie stories? I mean, really... Uh, Jughead eats a lot of burgers. I mean, you know, I, I really don't know how we cover that. But, uh, you know, who knows what could happen down the line. I got thinking about that today. I mean, I, I feel, part of me feels like we should at some point, but it's, yeah, it's going to be hard to fit it in the rotation. And I started thinking about it's got to be hard being a writer for Archie because, you know, you say you come up with some idea. I assume there's somebody at the Archie office that goes, nope, sorry, you want to have Betty and Veronica, you know, enter a band contest? That was done in 1967. Uh, wow, and they don't have that problem because they assume nobody's. Well, I know, but it just stories over and over. Again. Well, that's the question: is how, how many times can you retell these stories? It's just that's that's just it. It's got to be hard coming up because they publish like I don't know six, seven comics a month. You know, and then they do the digest. Just like wow, so I don't know. Hats out, hats off to them though, and they're still in grocery stores, so they get the last laugh. You know, I guess it's probably even easier to do Archie now because they are expanding their story. You know what I mean? Like they're doing a lot more sophisticated stuff now than they yeah. ever did. So maybe it's That's even true. easier. Like you know the the zombie one, right? Uh, and the, yeah, Mary yeah. And all. Mark yeah. Wade yeah. doing all the Archie stuff. Paul Kupperberg shot Archie at one point. You know, they yeah, do all kinds That's of true. All right, from our buddy Joe X, he says, The Golden Age Clock, that's a character, Clock was considered the first comics original masked hero, and he had a mask like um, Sportsmasters did, because I talked about that. And he goes, The Legends episode of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited had the sportsman as well. Oh, thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Cool. Al Gerding is back. He says, Well, of course I'm going to vote for the other JSA Digest for the second episode. Sorry, Al. <laughs> I have a ton of these Digests, so I think I am ready for whichever one you decide is next. Great job, guys. We're going to put that to the test, Al, when we announce the subject of the third episode at the end of this episode. <laughs> Heard from Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl blog and the proud owner of several DC Digests himself that he beat me in an eBay auction for. <laughs> Thanks for that, Martin. <laughs> he says, oh, I just know. Oh, let me get this right. Oh, cheerio. I just noticed via the show logo. Digest cast. DC. Digest cast. Clever sods. Yes, uh, Martin, that is absolutely 100% planned. We nailed that on the head. I'm so glad you caught our clever, clever, uh, you know, subtle nod to DC in the title. Or or it never occurred to us until we read your message. So thanks for that. <laughs> it's, goes all, on to, it's all a tapestry. He goes on to say, if I would have recommended Modern Digest for kids, it would be the Spider-Girl one from Marvel. Just classic comics, all-age fun. And apparently Martin has moved to Australia now. <laughs> You have the temerity to make fun of my accents that I do when you just roll that one out. My God. This is FDR. Anyway, um, yes, the Spider-Girl collections. I've never read them, but I hear they're wonderful. I mean, just super, super fun. The Spider-Girl um, Digest would be a blast. I've always wanted to get around to reading those. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Martin. All right. Chris Franklin from our network, Supermates, Power Records, Batman Nightcast. Where does he get those wonderful toys podcast? He wrote quite a long story, but we have to relate it here. Yes, it's too we good do. to pass it up. So stick stick with it. Stick 
with me, everybody. This, this gets really good. He says, I don't even know where to start. My love for the Digest is pretty obvious, as they sit on my bookshelf to this day in front of all my other hardbacks and TPVs. This issue in particular stands out because of a great number of things. One, I love the JSA, hence the Earth 2 moniker, and their origin is perhaps the best after-the-fact origin ever created. Let's face it, they usually suck wind. But this one is per- <laughs> this, but this one is perfect. I'm also a sucker for Starman, obviously. But the real reason this one stands out is because I received this issue the very day of my greatest childhood shame. I was in the first grade, and while our teacher was out of the room, the fire alarm sounded. As the other kids lined up at the door, as they were previously instructed, I decided it would be fun to run around the room, flailing my arms and screaming, Fire! Fire! Over and over. While my teacher... <laughs> What a little bastard. Well, my te- I'm imagining him as an adult doing this, is what oh, I'm saying. Okay, right. <laughs> well, my teacher did not find this a bit fun upon her return and dragged, my, dragged me by the arm outside the building where all the other kids and teachers were headed. When everyone was safely outside, my teacher decided to make an example of me irresponsible behavior, and having grabbed the paddle hanging near the door with her free hand, she spanked me in front of the entire school. Oh, they don't they, they don't play around in Kentucky. Yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> I spent the rest of the day in shame, sobbing, knowing I knew better than had to do something than to do something so stupid, and certain my parents would be very disappointed in me. I was right. When I got home, I had to show my dad the note. He gave me a calm but verbal dressing down and told me I'd have to wait until my mom came home to receive my official sentence. When my mom came in from work that evening, my dad met her at the door and filled her in. I then got a not so calm verbal dressing down. <laughs> And then my mom produced this very digest from her purse. She told me she had bought it for that good boy, not someone who would endanger himself and his friends just for a laugh. I then got my one and only parental spanking. Oof. Strangely enough, I got to keep the comic. My mom knew me well, and she knew I would never look at that comic and not think about the stupid thing I had done. She was right. I see that comic today, and I relive that odd day of shame. I never did anything like that again. And although there is another story considering a D- concerning a DC Digest, then irresponsible and irresponsible and irresponsibility, I can relate when you guys cover that one. Oh, we got to know which book that is now. Oh man, it's got to be Dark Mages of Forbidden Love. I'm betting. <laughs> Found it under his mattress. Jeez, um, poor that Chris. Is, that is ins- like the school had paddles. Well, on- my school had paddles too. Did they I mean, really? First grade. Oh, yeah, first grade? Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was proudly hung up in the school. Wow, uh, so, it, like, everyone. Now, now, by the time I got to probably fourth or fifth grade, I think only the principal had a paddle at that point. But wow. yeah, I was being in the classroom. Huh. Okay. Now, I never got dragged out and paddled in front of the entire school, though. Wow. Let's see if he pulls the, tries to pull the same stunt at Heroes Con. <laughs> I'm sure Cindy is used to spanking. Oh my! On that note, we're going to move on to Reverend Bradley Null. Uh, he wrote in to say, "This and the series All Star Squadron is where my love for the JSA is born. Before they were the older team that the Justice League. I'm sorry. Before that, they were the older team that the Justice League teamed up with. After reading this, I was hooked on the Earth Two guys. This book is so important to my personal comic history. It's part of one of my quote pop culture shaman displays, which by the way, you can see if you're friends with Bradley on Facebook, he's actually uh, displayed that before. It's a picture of like a, I don't know, it's like a bookcase. And on that shelf, there's all these things that are important to him, like totems. And one of them is this digest. The truth is that my love of the JSA time travel stories and alternate worlds start here. So this is where 12 year old me got hooked on my favorite part of superhero stuff. And then he goes on to say, yep, this is, this is in the top 10 most influential single comics for Bradley man. I truly Deeply love this little book. Wow. Awesome. Great. Great story. I like that he refers to himself in third person as well. 
like hammer. I enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> Brian, Brian Linton wrote in, Huzzah, it's a new podcast. Once again, you've exposed my ignorance of comicdom and proceeded to replace said ignorance with knowledge. My only real exposure to the digest format is to the Archie Digest, see, in the grocery store, see? So I'm looking forward to learning more. Well, Brian, as you know, you can look forward to Marvel Digest being in the grocery stores coming in June. The only problem is I'm going to have to buy these things now, too. My kids are going to want them, so. Uh, then heard from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and Legion of Super Bloggers. He, uh, he wrote it. Now, if you've ever listened to any of our other podcasts, Rob talks on and on and on and on and on and on and on about mountain comics. Well, Ange has something comparable that he calls beach comics. So he says, in the summer months, I did odd jobs for the church I attended, mowed lawns, and did generally anything a kid could do to make a buck. And right up to the road, I'm sorry, and right up the road from the beach house was a convenience store that had digests. So I bought a ton. Now they've been lost to the parental purge. He goes, I had a bunch of the best ofs, the Legion ones, the Brave and the Bold, the Metal Men, and whatever JSA ones I could grab. And uh, the other JSA one, I read the Dr. Fate, Marty Pascal, Walt Simonson story. Oh, man, that is like my fave. Anyway, because that one also had the Stream of Ruthlessness story, another fave. The Digests were perfect for throwing in a bag and taking to the beach, so I have fond memories. And then he goes on to say, hoping the Supergirl Digest does get eventually covered here. Um Ironically, I need to finish this podcast so I can pack because I'm going to the beach tomorrow. And I may just throw a couple of digests in my bag. You know, that's a great idea. Thank you, Ange. I got the idea for you. As far as the Supergirl digest goes, it's possible. Um, I don't know that it's on the docket anytime soon, though. Is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. All right. I uh, uh, I have to say, uh, when, when, when Ange mentions odd jobs, like I picture him doing like doctor stuff. As odd jobs when he was a teenager, he just wasn't licensed. Like he was just like, anybody need a tonsils taken out? I can just do that. I just yeah, a couple bucks is fine. I, I know back, that's not accurate, but back alley suturing. That's exactly. right. That's what he does. Right. Yeah. He, he's like that doctor that fixed up the Joker, messed up his face. Right. So uh, we got a message from Darren and Ruth Sutherland, the rat from the Nat Rad Network, Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talks, Xenozoic Xenophiles. Another fun show, guys. Really enjoyed it. I got rid of most of my digests long ago, but this is a nice reminder of what I liked about them. Thank you, Darren. And then Chuck Coletta wrote in to say, I still have some of my old digests, and I'm glad you're giving me a reason to look at them again. It seems like a no-brainer that DC would release digests again as the movies start to hit theaters. You'd think so, Chuck. The I di- know. The digests and Old Brave and the Bolds were how I learned about the DCU. One of my favorites was Best of DC number 14, The Batman Villains. I love the one-page origins of the villains. That's a really good one, Chuck. That's a, we're definitely going to get to that one at some point. That's a great one. Uh, that'll be fun. All right, we heard from, uh, I believe, a new commenter, uh, Alan W. Wright, who does a website uh, called Bold Outlaw about Robin Hood. And he goes on here, he says, I know these aren't proper digests, but the DC digests weren't the first time I read superhero tales at pocket size. Pocket Books reprinted several small reprints of 1960s Marvel stories. I read and reread the Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and Captain America volumes. Maybe that's why I'm so nearsighted now. Tempo Books also did pocket-sized black-and-white reprints of classic DC stories, although Tempo tended to have only one or two panels per page. Oh, the original lineup of the JSA feature... Oh, and then... um. I had I, I'm always fascinated by the way the JSA was created. I don't know if you guys know it was it was sort of a marketing stunt between All American Comics and National Comics, and they brought heroes from each team together. So uh, he goes on to say, "Oh, the original lineup of the JSA featured heroes from both National and All American. In 1944 to 1945, All American briefly ended their business arrangement and switched from the DC cover logo to an All American one. When All American was later formed, uh, formally merged with them, the National DC heroes." didn't rejoin the team. Interesting. I'd, I'd love to really sit down and break that down and really look at that in the characters. That'd be a lot, very interesting. Yeah, it's crazy. 
Now, those tempo books, are, are they the ones who did the, the Justice League one? I think – I don't know. I don't, okay. I don't know. I think those were Grosset and Dunlap. I think those oh, were okay. the DC ones. Because I've got the Justice League, the one with uh, – it's got the satellite and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, – mm-hmm. yeah, pretty cool stuff. I had, a, heard... I had a – I'm sorry. I had a pocketbook that reprinted the, reprinted the Captain America Baron Blood story. Oh, uh, that was really, and that's a mountain comic. That's a beloved mountain comic. So, uh, nice. yeah, those, those little pocketbooks were really cool. Too. Uh, heard from our buddy Diablo Frank, who I recently hung out with, and uh, he had to basically everything I'm about to read, he heaped upon me verbally as well. Uh, he's from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. He does the Idle Head of Diablo, which is a March Manhunter blog and podcast. He does the Marvel Superheroes podcast, the DC Bloodlines podcast, Diana Prince, the New Wonder Woman podcast, and many, 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 many more, and many, many, many blogs, because he apparently has no life. Uh, he goes on to say, one of the many reasons I'll never be a successful podcaster as you guys is that in my brain is just not wired like you two and your audience. I have trouble comprehending the concept of devoting a show to a specific dimension of paper stock, and you folks have two shows solely differentiated by publication format. <laughs> he does like a little dialogue back and forth. Here, I'll read the first line. You you read the next one, okay? So, oh, you're covering anthologies like Strange Adventures or Showcase? Did those books print their stories as 10, 14, 10 by 14 tabloids? I don't think so. No show for you! <laughs> there was this one Atomic Nights that ran as a five and a half inch by eight and a quarter inch booklet that was in the same rack as TV Guide. Oh, well that one's in then. <laughs> Frank's crazy. Uh, he goes on to say, I'm officially all of your dads, throwing my hands up when you sneer at the funny book. I thoughtfully bought you at the gas station on my way home from work just because I don't know the difference between the human fly and Spider-Man. <laughs> What's so bad about US-1? You used to love your Tonka truck so much. <laughs> and then finally, he goes on to say, uh, ironically, I would actually appreciate a funny stuff a funny stuff episode uh since that's the first of the two digests i recall buying off the newsstand ever <laughs> thank you frank you know i may actually end up picking one of those humor digests just at some point just to do something different might be fun okay uh, we got a message from mark baker Wright from black rocks toy box he says great first episode now this is now this is what he wrote yep i'm not, I'm not making a mistake here he wrote, if Ryan can't bring himself to do a Transformers-themed <laughs> episode, I'm more than happy to step in. I'll even bring along my copy of Transformers Digest issue number nine. So either Mark is being purposely funny by m- misremembering my name, or he is misremembering my name. Well, okay. What I, now, to be fair, in Mark's defense, I didn't include the second part. There was an email that followed this. Oh, was there? Oh, okay. it's, yeah, they said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry I met Rob. Oh, I just okay. found it horribly funny that, okay. he's talking, that he's talking about Transformers, something you can't stand, and then doesn't get your name right, which is even funnier. Because and I was Mark, like, yeah, okay. Mark and I go, Mark, Mark and I go way back. He's an old Firestorm fan. And so it just, uh, it was just cracked my butt up. I thought it was hilarious, unintentionally hilarious. Okay, well, well, Mike, I appreciate your comments. And Mark. I will... <laughs> and... Uh... <laughs> Uh, as revenge, I am going to do a Transformers episode, and I will bring to it every bit of enthusiasm that you might expect that I have for the characters. Oh, no! <laughs> he, he doesn't really mean that, folks. He's not going to do that. <laughs> we got an email from uh, chap page one. Uh, this one box is talking to this other box. <laughs> page two, this box hits this other box, and they yell, and then page three, it turns into a truck or something, and then Page four, the box turns into a picnic basket. And page five, the end. All right, story two. I think that's. I think that's what the story. I think that's what the podcast is. I yeah, think you're done. I, I, now I want to do it. All right. So we got a message from Lucy. And- By the way, 
should be careful. I made fun of Transformers on my JLI podcast. I haven't and just recently. Not, I mean, not even made fun of it, but just like had an argument about it. I have not stopped getting mail about it since that episode came out. Fans so fans are just humorless. Yeah, man, you don't, you don't, you don't play with Transformer fans. God, I'm just warning so you, buddy. Angry about them. You would think they'd be relaxed. They have like five giant movies to enjoy. You know, you think they would just be like chill out already. They have so many different incarnations because, like, every year they get a whole new series with a completely new continuity. So they should be, like, really relaxed about that kind of stuff. They're doing a movie about Bumblebee. Like, Bumblebee (laughs) is getting his own movie. Like, what are you guys so tense about, for God's sake? (laughs) Anyway, all right. So Lucien Desar. He says, uh, parentheses, fake British accent. That was bloody fantastic. I adore the Digest, and they are suitable for collecting in a small Manhattan apartment for me. Actually, digital is the best I buy, is is best, but I, but uh, my gin, hold on. Actually, digital is the best, but the Generation X part of me likes paper. Me too, Lucian. <laughs> I like watching trees destroyed for my pleasure. Heard from Ozzy Ray, who says, I have a newfound love for this format. The show came at just the right time. I'm excited to learn all I can from you folks. I only have two pocket-sized books. One is the Return of the Jedi comic book adaptation, and the other is the Hulk collection of newspaper strips. Dude, I have that Return of the Jedi collection. That's how I read the Return of the Jedi comics. Uh, I bought it in like Walden Books. It is shaped exactly, you know, it's it's that shaped like a, a, a novel. I remember finding it on the shelves and was just astonished that someone took a comic book and put it into novel form. And I loved it, and it's on my shelf to this day. I read, it. in fact, when um, I was on the Two True Freaks Network and we did a review of the Return of the Jedi comic, I read the novel version for there so I could kind of contrast with everyone else who was reading the comic or the supersize edition thing. Hmm. I didn't even know that they uh, did collections of the Hulk newspaper strip, so that, that led me down a rabbit hole to find some of that stuff. Rosie's <laughs> comment, so thank you for that. Uh, Bob Fisher from Superman Forever Radio says, Digest Cast is going to be a really fun show. Robin Chagger, a great team. Loved the first episode. Thank you, Bob. Uh, I think he got the names wrong again because I'm sure he meant Robin Chris because I know he doesn't mean you and me, so I don't know. Oh, being Debbie. a great team, you mean? Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, well, it could be. I don't know. Everybody's getting names wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I think he got it just fine. Uh, I heard from our buddy Michael Bailey, who has the Views from the Long Box Network now. No longer just one podcast. He's got a network of shows. And uh, just recently, if you want, you can hop over there. You can hear me talk about 1987, the greatest year in comics. And if you don't believe me, listen to the episode and then write me a letter and tell me I'm wrong because you ain't going to write me that letter by the end of it. I'm just saying. Uh, Mike was kind enough to promote the Digest cast, and he says, an amazing new show from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Love the JSA shows they, uh, stories they chose. Thanks, Mike. Heard from Robert Ward. says, got to love Shags admitting how old he is. Yes, thank you for pointing that out, Robert. I admitted in the last episode that I had to get, break out my readers to read this comic. Uh, I have to freely admit again I needed to break out my readers to read this one. And in the middle of reading it, I picked up the phone and called my eye doctor. I'm going to go get some transitions, I think, next. Mm-hmm. Those are the like the bifocally things. Oh, yeah. That's how old I am, folks. Woo. You should thank get the you. visor that Cyclops has. That would be really cool. No, I'm just going to get Jordy's, actually. Okay. <laughs> Sean Myers writes, yeah, in all caps. The first episode of Digest Cast is now up. The DC Digest one of my favorite comic series ever. I can't wait to hear what they say about this issue. Thank you, Sean. I hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs> well, we didn't hear from him on the back end, so no, maybe, we didn't. maybe yeah. it sucked. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Our buddy Siskoid from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, who does the First Strike Invasion podcast, the Oh Hot Moot or Not podcast, Give Me That Star Trek and the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast. He wrote us a nice comment, uh, made fun of me, and then says, JSA is great. Earth 2 is great. Great choices for First Digest. Thanks, Siskoid. Appreciate that. 
Kyle Benning from the King Size Comics Giant Science Fun Podcast wrote, and he says, great episode. By the way, I have to mention, when we were recording this, uh, Kyle was just on Shag's JLI show. He was on fire in that episode. I mean, <laughs> he, had, he had such a potty mouth. I'm not sure what was going on there. Uh, and you can look forward to hearing. Actually, by the time you guys all hear this, he will have just made an appearance on my Treasury Cast show. So this is a whole big week of Kyle Benning here on the network. And then you'll hear from him on our next Digest cast when he writes in to flame Rob alive for making fun of Transformers. <laughs> boxes hidden boxes. Keith, <laughs> and then finally, Keith G. Baker writes in, great show and super concept. See, Frank? Love the Digest. Yes, Germany had plans to invade England shortly after France fell. See Operation Sea Lion. Yep. Thank you, Keith. Because I posed that question. I, I asked, was that a legit right. thing? So, and I figured you knew your FDI, FDR lore, so you'd know <laughs> the answer. Um, folks, and, you know, as I said, we're going to try and keep the feedback sort of short, so we're not going to do all the retweets and the shares. I mean, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of those folks. This, sh- this show got shared far and wide across this great land. Thank you so much for doing that. We sincerely appreciate it. Uh, if you want to do it again, that'd be awesome. We'd love it. So now, folks, I... You know, Rob picked the first digest. He picked the Justice Society digest. I picked this digest because I wanted the diversity, the diversity of genres and such. Rob, the next one's up to you, buddy. Do you want to tell? Do you want to tell us in advance so they can get ready? Yes, let's do that. Let's so all right. People can get ready. We decided to change it up a little. We're gonna we're gonna <laughs> reveal what we do ahead of time. So okay. So since by the time we do the next episode, it'll be mid-April. Uh, it'll be baseball season by then, and I'm very excited about mm. that. So I'm choosing DC Special Blue Ribbon Digest number thirteen. Strange Sports Stories, which Ooh. features a cover of the DC heroes facing off the DC villains in a baseball game with the referee being Uncle Sam. That is absolutely <laughs> – how can I turn down that cover? It's so amazing. And it features other stories that are that are not superhero related. But just the idea that the, the main story is the great superstar game featuring heroes playing villains in a giant baseball game. That is too crazy to turn down. So that's what we're tackling. DC's Crystal Blue Ribbon Dodgers 13, September 1981, Strange Sports Stories. Is this like the Battle of the Network Stars? Um, <laughs> and folks, by the way, if you listen closely, that noise you hear, that is the pistol start of the race to eBay to see who can <laughs> order this digest first when this comes out. So on your mark, get set, go. We'll find out next month who has it when we review this issue. That's going to do it for now, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Rob, you want to tell the folks at home where they can find you? You can find all of it. Well, just go to our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And then on Twitter, I have all my Twitter handles, which is at Treasury Comics, at Film and Water Pod, and at Pod Dylan. Notice that Rob doesn't uh, have the courage to launch a Digest Cast uh, handle, but that's okay. We're not feeling the love, Rob. No can problem. I, can I tell you why I haven't done that? I'll tell you because, why. Uh, because the Twitter Apple only allowed you to have so many counts linked? <laughs> yes. It's exactly, Are you serious? Yes. I was kidding. No, because like you have to have a separate email for every Twitter uh, account you open, and I literally don't have any more email handles. I can't, I can't lose any because I use other ones. <laughs> so I literally have no email handle in which to use. So – yeah. That is hysterical. That is too funny. <laughs> uh, folks, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and all that under Fa- Firestorm Fan, or as Rob said, part of the network. That's the best way to go. So I think it's going to do it, folks. And until next time, always remember big things come in small packages.
record? What do you, what do you want to do right now? Let's uh, let once Tracy stops sneezing, we can uh, record. Hey, I told her bless you. You didn't even bother to convey that. Instead, you just Shag make fun of. Shag says bless you. Why don't the two of you can get a podcast then? Uh, <laughs> that would be awesome. We would have a great time. Oh, yeah. I'd like to see you two schedule that.